Last week, if you weren't here, hopefully you were, but if not, you can go back online and catch up. But last week, we started talking about one of life's most uh, destructive enemies. And in this series, we're just simply calling that enemy the drift. And the drift is this imperceptible, unavoidable, insidious enemy uh, that sooner or later, all of us will have to deal with uh, sooner or later or in one way or another. It's going to happen. Everybody's going to have to deal with the drift. Sometimes you have to deal with it relationally because, you know, you begin to drift apart from certain people. Sometimes you can have a, a, a drift that occurs morally and, and you kind of drift away from, you know, what you were taught is right and what you were taught was wrong and, and what you were taught was true and good and better and best. Uh, sometimes you can drift strategically away from goals or away from your vision or away from your values. And, but here in this series, we're primarily talking about how that we all have a propensity uh, at some point in our lives uh, to struggle with the drift spiritually. And, and no matter where the drift shows up, it's always a very subtle erosion uh, that takes place over time. And, and the erosion is so subtle, you, you hardly can't even notice it. So when we're talking about drifting, we're talking about drifting silently and softly without noticing. Uh, and, and drifting is such an easy thing to do because all you have to do in order to drift is just do nothing. It's just take your hands off the wheel and it's an easy course and it's an easy trajectory to find oneself on because it's purposeless, it's aimless, it's, it's unintentional. And that's the word that just really kind of, it just scares me a bit uh, to think about. It's an unintentional shift in values. It's an unintentional shift in perspective. It's an unintentional shift in beliefs. And, and this unintentional shift results an unintentional change that affects the quality and the direction of our lives and not for the good, not for the better. And here's the thing, this is why we're talking about it. By the time you end up realizing you're drifting or by the time I realize that I'm drifting, I'm usually already in dangerous waters. And as we said last week, when that happens, anything can happen. So last week we looked at this warning that was given to us in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament about how we need to pay attention so that we don't drift away. We need to pay attention to what's true and what's right and what's good and what's best. We need to pay attention to those things, stay tethered to those things, be anchored to those things so that we don't drift away. And so we talked about this progression that takes place uh, as we drift. And that was really the message last week that the, the progression is we drift away, we turn away, we become deceived and we turn to idols. That's how it works. Uh, we drift away and we lose our way. We drift away from what is right, from what is best, from what is good. And and as we drift away, we don't realize it because it's happening ever so subtly that we are actually turning away from the living God. And as we are turning away from the living God, it's not as though we are physically turning away from the living God, but we are turning away from God in our consciousness. We're just losing the consciousness of God. God's not factoring into our decisions. God's not influencing the way that we're living our lives. He's not influencing the, the framework and the fabric of, of how we make decisions and choices that are highly consequential. So as we turn away from God, we lose a consciousness of God. We just don't think about God that much. We don't take him that seriously. And as we turn away from God, the more distant we get, that distance creates deception. We become deceived. We deceive ourselves. We get deceived by sin. Somehow we believe that right is wrong and wrong is right and up is down and down is up. And we get so turned around, we think we know where we're headed, but we don't. We think we know where we're going, but we don't. So we drift away, we turn away, we become deceived until the point that we turn to idols. 
Now, we don't turn to little wooden statues or anything like that, but we turn to idols. We turn to worthless things. We turn to less important things. And as Jeremiah told the people in his day, you have turned to worthless things and you as well have become worthless in doing so. When we turn to idols, it's, we're looking for things to give us what only God can give us. We're looking to people to give us what only God can give us. We, we turn to idols and we look for pleasure, but we only find pain. Uh, we turn to idols to look for excitement and they only leave us numb. Uh, we turn to idols to look for fulfillment, but they leave us feeling empty. And we turn to idols to find life, but they only rob us of life. And that's what happens when we drift. We drift away, we turn away, we become deceived, and then we turn to lesser things. We turn to idols. And we think that those things and those people and those actions that they're gonna give us what only God can. And so we're so deceived and we end up in such dangerous places. It's called the drift. It's called the drift. And here, here's, here's an observation about the drift when it happens in your life, when it happens in my life, when it happens really in anybody's life. When we drift, we become our own worst enemy. When we drift, we become our own worst enemy. We end up tripping ourselves. We end up deceiving ourselves. We end up lying to ourselves. We end up wounding ourselves. When we drift and we turn away and we get deceived and we turn to worthless things, to worthless idols, we end up piling regret upon regret upon regret upon regret upon regret that haunts us. We end up doing things that undermine the peace and joy that we desperately crave. We do things that put our futures in jeopardy. That's what happens when we drift away and turn away, when we get deceived and we turn to idols. We become our own worst enemy. We can't get out of our own way. The very things that we want and the very things that God wired us to need in life, we undermine ourselves. And, and it's really just a nonsensical paradox, but when we try to lead, uh, we, actually, <laughs> we actually are just drifting and, and we don't even know it. When we try to maintain course for what we think is best, uh, we somehow end up heading towards things and towards people that are not at all what's best for us. So when we drift, we end up being our own worst enemy. And this exactly, this is exactly what happened in the life of the person that I want us to talk about today. It's a person that you've heard about, you know, probably since Sunday school. And even if you've not grown up in church or Sunday school, you've probably heard this name kicked around a little bit. But someone that we see this absolutely being true in is a guy by the name of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, you'll find his story in the Old Testament and you'll find it in the book of Genesis, but Jacob was one of Israel's patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Jacob was the son of Isaac. He was the grandson of Abraham. So that, that's pretty good pedigree, um, you know, from our perspective. It's like Abraham's the father of faith and, and then there was Isaac and there's some incredible stories uh, about his life and about his adventures and his journey of faith and, you know, things that, you know, include both him and Abraham. Abraham, his dad. And so you've got Abraham and Isaac, which is part of Jacob's heritage, part of his, you know, family lineage. So he's the son of Isaac. He's the grandson of Abraham. He is the twin of Esau. He's got a twin brother by the name of Esau, a hairy kid, hairy baby. Uh, that is an interesting detail in the Old Testament scripture. So, you know, he was just born hairy and he was born like, you know, the firstborn. And, and in those days, um, that was a big deal during that time in history and in that particular culture, because 
those of you who were born first, that meant that you were entitled to a larger chunk of the inheritance. Uh, and it also meant that once your dad died, that you were kind of the de facto leader of the family or the tribe. So it was a big deal to be born first. And, and Jacob was Esau's twin, but Esau was born first. And we'll talk about more about that in just a moment. But Jacob, Jacob was a charismatic guy. I mean, he had a lot of charisma. He was quick on his feet. I mean, quite simply, you know, Jacob was more than likely just a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's a creative guy. Um, he's a strategy thinker. Uh, he, he loved to think about things, you know, 360. Uh, his name, Jacob, his name, Jacob, it means schemer. It means deceiver. It means liar, manipulator, supplanter. I mean, that, that's, that's Jacob. That, that's his name. And, and that's really, you know, who he was. Uh, he lived much of his life, um, Jacob, believing that he could, you know, control circumstances and manipulate outcomes. Um, and, and that's a tiring, exhausting, stressful way to live life, believing that you or I have the capacity to control circumstances and manipulate outcomes for our own gain. Uh, but that's Jacob. He, he was always going into every situation believing that he could control the circumstance and that he could manipulate and manage the outcome because he believed that he was smarter than everybody else. He believed that he was five steps ahead of everybody else and, and that he knew exactly what needed to happen and how it needed to happen. And so that's Jacob. Uh, his greatest interest was his own self-interest. So he's always scheming and deceiving for his own benefit. And because of it, he, he was so self-sufficient because he trusted in himself so much. He trusted in his ability to get it done. He trusted his ability to figure it out. He trusted in his ability to plan and connive to, in order to get or to go where it was or you know, to obtain what it was that he thought that he needed or he thought that he wanted. Uh, he was so self-sufficient and his self-interest coupled with that self-sufficiency was the thing that always kept getting in the way of his faith. He was so self-sufficient and he was so full of self-interest that those two things just always got in the way of Jacob's faith. So he's a man who hurt others and he was a man who hurt himself in the process of hurting others. He found it difficult to trust God with his life and his future. Why trust God when I can just do it myself? Why trust God with my future when I can just orchestrate my own? Why trust God and wait on him when I know what can be done and I know how to get it done? You know, why trust God when I can just do it myself? So he trusted in himself and he served himself and he loved himself at the expense of God. And that was kind of his struggle. And he often took things into his own hands uh, rather than trusting those things to God's hands, he took things in his own hands and it tended to get him into trouble uh, almost every single time. Now, when we meet Jacob, it was at his birth. That's when we first meet him. But there's something really important and I don't want you to miss this because there's a whole storyline that you, you, you really need as a context to really appreciate um, the story that I do wanna tell you. Uh, Jacob, uh, before he was born and before his twin brother Esau was born, God had spoken a promise to his mother, Rebekah. And God told Rebekah, Rebekah, inside of your womb are two boys. And those two boys are gonna be two nations. And those two nations are gonna become two peoples and they're gonna separate from each other. They're, they're not gonna be able to get along with each other. And one of those peoples are gonna be stronger than the other. And then God spoke this to Rebekah. He spoke this over Jacob and Esau. He said, and the older will serve the younger. 
The older will serve the younger. And that was not the way it was supposed to be because in that culture at that time, the older was the one who had the birthright. The older was the one who received the blessing. But God told Rebecca, he said, the older will serve the younger. So God had set aside the blessing, not for Esau who was older, but for Jacob who was the younger. God had set aside the blessing of the firstborn, the birthright for Jacob and not Esau before they were ever born. So we're introduced to this moment when, when Rebecca goes into labor and, and she has her first son, which was Esau. And so Esau is born. And then the historian of Genesis uh, puts this uh, little detail in there. It says, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And so here is Esau, Esau's born as he's coming out of his mother's womb, his twin brother Jacob has got a hold of his heel. Now, of course we would say, hey, this is the historian telling us what happened, but more than just you know, what happened, th this is really kind of a metaphor for, for who Jacob is and how Jacob is and how Jacob will live his life. That he was born grabbing onto his twin brother's heel trying to gain any advantage that he could, perhaps trying to pull Esau back so he could be first, grabbing onto his brother's heel in order to do whatever he needed to do to get ahead, to do whatever he needed to do to be first. Because Jacob, from the very beginning, was born with a me-first mentality. And the, the, the author of Genesis is trying to, to lay this, and it's really a great, beautiful way to tell the story, that, that Jacob was born with a me-first mentality. That's how he's born. That's how he's gonna live the rest of his life. He was grabbing onto his twin brother's heel, trying to gain an advantage, trying to get ahead, trying to be first. That's how he was born. That's how he will live. And so the reason that the story of Jacob is so important and so relevant is this right here. There is a little bit of Jacob in all of us. There's a little bit of Jacob in all of us. We all have a little bit of a tendency, maybe a big tendency to live life with a me first mentality. We all fall into temptation from time to time, from time to time to time to time, where we allow self-trust. I'm gonna get it done. I'm gonna do it my way. I, I'm gonna try to get a plan. I'm gonna try to do it my own. Don't have time to trust God. Don't have time to depend on God. We all have you know, those moments and seasons in life where we allow self-trust and self-interest to get in the way of our faith, just like Jacob. And so this is why this story is so important. It's why it's so relevant, because he lived with a me first mentality. And he would at times hurt people in order to get ahead. At times he would hurt others in order to gain an advantage. And every time he would hurt someone in order to get an advantage or to get ahead or to be first, he would hurt himself in the process. Now, to tell you a little bit more about Jacob and his twin brother Esau, Jacob was white collar. Uh, Esau was more blue collar. Uh, Esau, you know, like I said, he's a hairy man. He's an outdoorsman. He, you know, he, he's, he's a man who likes to work with his hands. He's a prolific hunter and, and that's how he's known. Uh, Jacob, like I said, he's white collar. He prefers air conditioner. He prefers the indoors. He prefers cooking with mama. That's the reason that Isaac, um, you know, had Esau as his favorite son and Rebecca had Jacob as her favorite son uh, because Jacob loved to cook. And Isaac loved Esau because he loved to hunt and he loved to eat his son's food. So you've got Rebecca who decides that Jacob is my favorite 
and you've got Isaac who decides Esau's my favorite. And whenever, you know, you've got a family where every child knows that the other parent has the other child as their favorite, it's a bad deal. It's the beginning of a bad story. And so there's all kinds of bad things going on in this family and dysfunctional things going on in this family. Later on, one day, uh, Esau's been out hunting and Jacob's gonna swindle him. Jacob's gonna con him because Jacob is a con. He's a con artist. He's a deceiver. He's a schemer. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. So one day, Jacob, and you may remember this story from Sunday school, he swindles his brother out of his birthright because remember Esau was the firstborn. Esau came in from hunting. He'd been hunting all day and he was starved to death. And he came in from hunting, but little did he know that he was now the hunted and Jacob has been thinking about this. Jacob has been preparing for this. Jacob's got a plan. He's five steps ahead. He's been playing chess with this in his mind. He's got a scenario all cooked up. And he's got this big bowl of chili, this big bowl of stew. And he sees his brother coming in and he's got this. He knows this is not a momentary thought. This is a plan because this is what Jacob does. He's been waiting for this moment. He's been calculating this moment. He knows what's about to happen before it even happens. And so Esau comes in, so I'm starved to death, I'm starved to death, I'm starved to death. And Jacob's like, you know how I love to cook. I just want you to smell this. I've got about 14 spices in there. I've used prime meat in here. I just want you to look at that. Look at that, smell that. It smells amazing, doesn't it? And, and you know, Esau's like, oh, Jacob, man, come on. You gotta hit your brother up. I, I, I want a bowl of that. I'm starving to death. I'd do anything for bowl soup. Jacob said, hmm, interesting that you would say that. I'll give you a bowl of this soup if you'll sell me your birthright. And of course, Esau, there's a whole discussion to be had about the fact that he couldn't control his appetite and he was willing to sell off his birthright for just a mere bowl of stew. But Esau says, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll, I'll give you my birthright. Just give me some of that chili. And to which I'm thinking, how good must that chili have been? Uh, Esau must have had that chili before. And he's thinking, okay, yeah, I'll give you my birthright. Just give me some of that chili. And so he cons, he swindles his brother out of his birthright. Now, about the same time, Rebecca, Rebecca, you know, she loved to work behind closed doors. She was a manipulator uh, a little bit herself. She was a, you know, a schemer a little bit of herself. We love the idea of our kids getting the best of us, but we don't like to think about when the kids that we raise get the worst of us. And so, you know, a little bit of Jacob, perhaps a lot of Jacob we see in his mother, Rebecca, because she's a little bit, you know, of a schemer herself. She concocts a plan. Uh, for Jacob to deceive his father Isaac into giving Esau's birthright to him. Because once the father Isaac would speak it, it would be irrevocable. And so Rebecca, you know, she comes up with this plan. It's a great story, I have time to tell you. But you know, you just need to, you need to fool your father. You need to make Isaac think that you're Esau. So he'll bless you. And his blessing, it'll be irrevocable. And even though he thinks he's blessing Esau, it'll still really be your blessing. And so here you've got, you know, Jacob's mom, Rebecca, you know, actively working to deceive her husband and Jacob's father. I mean, this, this family is anything but functional. Anything but functional. And this is, this is why I love the scriptures. And this is why we should never read the scriptures as though, you know, once upon a time in a land far, far away and people that were not necessarily human. Because when you read the stories of the patriarchs and you read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, the first families of faith, their families dripped with dysfunctionality. 
Those families were so jacked up and messed up and screwed up. It's not even funny. I mean, some of the things that took place by Abraham, some of the things that took place with Isaac and Jacob, I mean, it's, it's, it's not only embarrassing, but it's scandalous. And, and to think about, these are our heroes of faith. These are people that the New Testament would write about in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 as being, these are the heroes of the faith. And the reason that should be encouraging is because we all woke up this morning and looked in a mirror and we know who we are and we know how we are. And to know that God can use dysfunctional people like this, it's like, there's hope for our family. There's hope for our family. You got Jacob who's deceiving Esau. You've got Jacob who's manipulating his father, Isaac. And you've got Jacob doing what Jacob always does, trying to control the circumstance, trying to manipulate the outcome, trying to control the circumstance, manipulate the outcome. And as I said, that's a really stressful way to live and it's kind of exhilarating and, and you know, it's adrenaline filled and, and you're always walking a tight wire and, and it's just all of that. And yeah, it was a little exciting, Con and his brother, you know, coming up with the plan at the right moment and executing it. Bam, it was awesome, a little bit exciting. It was a little bit exciting to go into his father Isaac and to kind of pull the wool over his eyes because he was old and he couldn't see that well and he pulled it off and he executed it to a tea and it worked out just the way it was supposed to work out. It was beautiful. The plan came together just the way it was. And, and it was kind of exhilarating to live that way for Jacob. But it was also, it was killing Jacob. It was robbing Jacob of so very much. But here's an observation that I just want to make note of. It's not the point, but I felt like it was such a good observation of Jacob because I think it has such relevance to us. Here, here's what we see Jacob doing over and over again. Jacob often deceives and manipulates in order to get what God has already promised him. God spoke over him before he was ever born and said that the younger would be served by the older. God had already spoken the promise to Jacob. God had already said, this is yours. This is your inheritance. This is your blessing. But what does Jacob do? Jacob spends so much of his life manipulating and deceiving to get what God already said you're gonna have but he went about it on his own terms and with his own agenda to which we do the very same thing. God's promised us meaningful things like peace and joy and fulfillment and those types of things. But what do we do? We deceive and manipulate to go after those things in our own way, on our own terms, with our own agenda. And it just, it just messes it up. It just blows it all up. How Jacob lived, I see myself so clearly in Jacob. For some of us to look at Jacob's life, it's like, I understand this guy. It's like I grew up with him. It's like I, he was on my team or something. I, I know him. I know how he's thinking. So once Jacob has deceived his brother and once he's deceived his father, Isaac, Esau gets blood in his eyes. I mean, Esau wants Jake dead. He wants him gone. He wants him under the earth. And so Rebecca, Rebecca, you know, she loves, she loves uh, Jacob. And she says, Jacob, Jacob, honey, I've heard that your brother, he wants you dead. He wants you dead. You're gonna have to leave home. I mean, think about this. If not, your brother's gonna kill you. That's dysfunction, people. I don't know how many of y'all have ever had your mom look at you and say, you gotta leave, your brother's gonna kill you. Like literally, I don't know, some of you may have. But I'm just saying, that's, that's like a whole other level of like my family is, you don't understand, we, are, we carry crazy in our back pocket and we spend it like crazy. And it's like, honey, you're gonna have to leave if you don't leave. He's gonna kill you. I just can't stand the thought of losing you. I just love you. You know how I feel about you. Oh God, leave. I want you to, she says, go to my, go to my brother Laban. He's over in Aaron. 
and go just stay there until everything dies down. You know your brother, he'll get over it sooner or later, but right now if he sees you, if he finds you, he's gonna kill you. So Jacob, he leaves home. This was not part of the plan. Jacob runs away from home to save his life, not part of the plan. Because you can't always control the circumstance and you can't always manipulate the outcome. He leaves home and he travels 50 miles in one day. I mean, he's hoofing it. I mean, he is, I mean, he is on edge. I mean, he's really fearful. I mean, he, he doesn't know what's about to happen. So he goes 50 miles and when he really can't go any further, he says, when he reached a certain place or you know, some translations give the idea of when he reached the place. But when he reached a certain place and, and he's 50 miles into the journey, he's headed toward his uncle Laban's house, but he's in a desert. That's where he's at right now. He, he's in a desert, he's in a barren place, he's in a wasteland, he, it's a dangerous place. Uh, you know, it's hot in the day, it's cold at night in the desert, there was all kinds of crime that went on in the desert. There was all kinds of things that just happened in the desert. You just didn't wanna be in the desert. It's not the place that you wanna be. It wasn't the place that Jacob wanted to be. It wasn't the place that Jacob planned on being. Even though he's a planner and a schemer and a manipulator, even though he's a conniver, this was not part of his contention. He did not think that he would end up here. But you know how he ended up here? He drifted there. It just all didn't happen overnight. But something had been adrift in Jacob for years and years and years in his heart and his mind in the way that he saw the world and in his values and, and the way that he interacted and the way he lived with a me first mentality. He's been adrift for years. He didn't end up in this barren wasteland overnight. He drifted there. His choices have brought him here. One choice at a time, one choice at a time, one choice at a time, one choice at a time until finally one choice broke the dam and now he's in a barren wasteland, in a barren land that he never wanted to be in. And he reaches that place, that certain place and he's wrestling with his failure. There's no rest. I mean, how can you rest? How can you relax? This is not vacation. This is not just time away. I and mean, every time he hears a twig break, he's like, is that Esau? Esau is a hunter. Maybe he's tracked me here. Every time the wind blows, it's like, did he hear something? There's no peace. There's no rest. There's no joy. He's in the desert. He's in the desert. And he's wrestling with his failure. Now I'm gonna give Jacob the benefit of the doubt and say, he just didn't think it was gonna go this far. He didn't intend for all this to happen. And yeah, I don't even think he really meant to hurt people to the degree that he hurt people. But he got there anyway because he drifted there. And he's wrestling without peace, without joy, without rest. He's on edge, he's paranoid, and he's wrestling with what he's done. And he's doing it all alone because he has no distractions. Nobody there to distract him, nothing there to distract him, no phone in his hand, no internet, nothing that he can turn to to try to get him to stop thinking about it. No, he's alone and he's in a wasteland and he is forced to confront what he has done. He is forced to think about what he has done. And he's armed with regret. 
He's armed with fear. He's got fret. He doesn't know what the future may hold. He's scared. He doesn't know what Esau's going to do. He doesn't know how his dad feels about him anymore. And he's in the worst possible place that you can be in, in my opinion. I could be wrong, and I reserve the right to be wrong, but I think he's in the absolute worst place that you could be in. He's in a hell of his own creation. And there's nothing like suffering in a hell that you know you created, that you know you're responsible for. There's no worse suffering than being in a situation knowing that you're the author and the cause of the situation and you feel the pain and you feel all the unrest and all the fear and all the regret of it. He's in a hell of his own creation and he's having to wallow in it. He has sunk to the bottom. He's not proud of what he's done. He's not proud of it. Perhaps he would take some of it back. He's broken. His choices have broken him. Yet, this is the place and this is the moment that God will meet Jacob. And you know what? Those are the moments and those are the places that God will meet us as well. The moments when you drop the ball, the moment when I drop the ball, when we drifted away and we turned away and we got deceived and we turned to worthless things and we drifted from what was right and from what was good and what was best, when we hurt others to get what we wanted, when we hurt others to gain an advantage, when we crossed a line we never thought we would cross, when we hit the bottom, when we licked the actual bottom of the gutter, when we begin to question, do I have a future? Can God still use me? Does God still love me? Does he still care about me? And when you and I are in a hell that we created in a mess that we caused, oftentimes that's where God will meet us. That's where God met Peter. I'll never deny you, Jesus. Only he denied him three times. And as he was wallowing and weeping bitterly in a hell that he created for himself, Right after the resurrection, who did Jesus go looking for? Peter. And he met him in his own barren desert wasteland while he was alone, faced with what he had done. That's where God loves to meet us. He loves to meet us in the mess, even when it's the mess we created. It says that he reached a certain place and he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under, under his head and he laid down to sleep. So he falls asleep and he has a dream. You may remember this from your childhood. You know, you colored this in Sunday school. And he dreamed about a, a stairwell. He dreamed about a ladder that went from heaven down to earth. And there were angels descending and ascending, descending and ascending. And, and he saw that. And this was kind of, in my opinion, this was God's way to let Jacob know, you're not alone, Jake. You feel alone. And you're beating yourself up right now. You hate yourself right now. You can't even stand to think about what you've done right now. But Jake, even though you think you're all alone, even though you can't feel me, even though you can't see me, even though you can't hear me, I want you to know, Jake, I'm right here in the mess with you. Jake, every step of the way that you drifted away, I came after you because I refuse to allow you to drift alone. And you may have felt distant from me, but I was never distant from you. I was right there with you because I refused to allow you to drift by yourself. So Jacob, you're not alone. 
So he has this dream and he's thinking about, you know, the angels ascending and descending. And then the, the next verse says, and the Lord, the Lord was at the top. The Lord stood at the top. Can you put that up there, please? There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And and this is God saying, Jake, listen to me. I made your granddad a promise. Your granddaddy Abraham, I promised him that one day the whole earth would be blessed through one of his offspring. I promised your daddy Isaac the very same promise. And Jacob, I want you to know that the promise that I made them was bigger than them. And it's bigger than you. And this is the moment when faith really begins to start becoming personal to Jacob. God's telling Jacob, Jacob, I've made a promise to your granddad and to your dad. But I want you to listen to me, Jacob. I am with you. Told you, I knew what he said. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Not only was I with your granddad, Abraham, and not only was I with your dad, Isaac, but I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And it says, when Jacob woke up from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And this is a moment that's gonna mark Jacob for the rest of his life. He'll never forget it. This was like the moment that faith became personal for him. Like some of you, you've had that moment when you had an experience with God, an experience in the presence of God that you, it was absolutely undeniable. And it marked you, it changed you, that God met you in one of the darkest seasons of your life, that God met you when you were at the bottom of the gutter. God met you. Faith became personal to you in a profound way and you've never been able to forget it. You've never been able to move past it. That's this kind of moment for Jacob. It's the moment that God met him in his despair. It's the moment that Jacob learns the grace of God is free. This is the moment that Jacob begins to learn that God's mercies are tender and God's love is patient. It's where Jacob begins to understand something about God, that failure doesn't scare God away. My failure, your failure, his failure, it doesn't chase God away. Because in the moments of our worst failure, God, he doesn't step away. He actually steps in and he gets closer. And so Jacob is having an experience with God he'll never forget, he'll never get over. This may be the first time, it's certainly the greatest time in Jacob's life where he's ever experienced God in this personal of a way before. It says early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it and he called that place Bethel or the house of God. He leaves there and 20 or 30 years go by and there's a lot that happens in there and I wish I could tell you everything to the degree I think it should be told, but Jacob leads Bethel and he's, he's headed, you know, he's got fresh faith, but listen, he's still rough around the edges. Just because you have an experience with God is no assurance that you're not gonna do something dumb tomorrow. 
You have an experience with God right now, no insurance, you're not gonna do something stupid today. He leaves there, he's still rough around the edges and he's heading toward his uncle, he's heading toward Laban's house. Now we're told that Laban, his uncle, had two daughters, one Leah, the oldest, and one Rachel, the youngest. And the scripture in a really you know, winsome kind of way says about Leah that she had no sparkle in her eye. I think that's Hebrew for she's ugly. She's just ugly. But it says of Rachel, she had a lovely face and a beautiful figure. So when Jacob saw Rachel, he fell in love and he went up to Laban and said, what do I gotta do to marry your daughter Rachel? And Laban, Laban was kind of a little bit like Jacob. He was a little bit of a, little bit of a deal maker, wheeler dealer. And he said, okay, you work for me for seven years. I'll give you Rachel. Jacob said, deal. And it says that Jacob loved Rachel so much that those seven years felt like just a few days. That's how much he loved her. But then when it came time to consummate the marriage, Laban, mm. you ever heard of getting a taste of your own medicine? You ever heard of what comes around, goes around, or when your chickens come home to roost? Laban decides that he's gonna give Jacob a little taste of his own medicine. So on the night that the wedding was to be consummated, he takes Leah to the wedding chamber. And when Jacob comes in, it's dark, there's no light. And Jacob's eager, he asks very few questions. And so he, he consummates the marriage. And then the next morning as the sun comes up and the light begins to shine, Jacob looks over and there's no sparkle in his bride's eye. And there's no sparkle in his either. And he's thinking, what in the world? You're not Rachel, you're the one I didn't want. And so he goes to Laban and says, what are you doing? What kind of guy, what kind of guy cons his own family? What kind of guy takes advantage of his own blood? What, what kind of guy would scheme against his own family? And he's thinking, maybe Jacob caught himself and was like, okay, that's not important. Let's not answer those questions. Why did you do me that way? What have I got to do to marry Rachel? He said, work for me for another seven years. <laughs> he looks back at Leah, looks at Rachel, deal, <laughs> deal. So Laban goes ahead and gives him Rachel as his wife. So, you know, you've got Jacob who's married to Leah and Rachel who's married to Rachel. And that's always the beginning of a horrible story whenever you've got a man and his two wives. So you've got, you know, Jacob who's with Leah and Leah, Leah immediately just starts getting pregnant and she gives, she gives, you know, Jacob three sons. All the while, Rachel can't get pregnant. So it's like this competition between Leah and Rachel that's gonna be highly consequential later on. But Rachel can't get pregnant and she's getting so angry that Leah's given Jacob sons and she's not. So she looks at Jacob one day and she says, Jacob, I apparently can't get pregnant. So I would like for you to sleep with my assistant, Bilha, So she might get pregnant. And we have no record of Jacob offering any protest. Jacob's like, okay. And, and so he sleeps with Rachel's assistant and she gets pregnant. She actually gets pregnant a couple of times. So Jacob and Rachel gets a couple of sons through Bilhah. And then during that time, Leah stops conceiving uh, for whatever reason. And so now she's getting worried that Rachel's gonna get the upper hand. And so she borrows a play out of her sister's playbook and she looks at Jacob and says, hey, you know, it's been a while since I've been able to have you a child. I would like for you to sleep with my assistant, Zilpah. 
And Jacob's thinking, who are you women? I, okay, uh, I, okay. And so he does, and, and Zilpah gives Jacob a couple of I'm telling you, this is like, this is like a movie that's a train wreck. I mean, if you saw this, this would just be like, if you lived with these people in their neighborhood, you would be like, kids, we're moving, we're moving. These people, but the, ladies and gentlemen, you're heroes of faith. Talking about a non-traditional family. One day, Rachel, she's wanting some mandrakes. You know, they were supposed to like aphrodisiacs and, so uh, this is in the Bible, isn't that crazy? You should read the Bible. I mean, you really should, it's like great. And, and, and read it with just a little bit of imagination and, and it's just, it's wild. And so she said, I want some of those mandrakes, but one of Leah's sons said, nah. And Leah said, no, you can't have any. And she goes, I really would like to have some of those. And she, you know, and Leah said, it's gonna cost you. And Rachel said, okay, how about I give you an extra night with Jacob? So she's like pimping out Jacob. Uh, and, and I mean, this is crazy. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And, and, and it's like, oh my gosh, th- th- these people, I'm feeling better about myself today. Uh, maybe you are too. And it's like, okay, and then Leah sleeps with Jacob and she c- conceives again and again. And then Rachel gets pregnant again and again. And he, he, he's, his family's growing. His wealth is growing. Laban's wealth is growing because Jacob is such a cunning, brilliant business guy. Finally, Jacob wants to leave and he strikes a deal with Laban. Laban thinks that he's, you know, swindling Jacob, but Jacob ends up swindling Laban. And and it kind of creates a little bit of a mess and Jacob has to do what Jacob does, which is run away. Run away. You make a mess, you run away. You hurt some people, you run away. Later on, they'll make peace, but in this moment, he runs away. And as he's running away, he gets news he didn't want it to hear because, you know, when you're always trying to manage the circumstance and all, you're trying to manipulate the outcome, you, you just get exhausted. And then sometimes it's like one hit right after the other, after the other. And then he leaves Laban and somebody says, Esau's coming. What? And it was like the worst possible thing at the worst possible moment. They said, he's got 400 men with him and he's got blood in his eyes. And we're talking 20 years, this vengeance has been simmering. And Esau, Esau, Esau's coming after you, man. And Jacob's thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And so Jacob goes to work and he knows that Esau's close. And so he, he, he kind of gets a plan because that's what he does. He takes matters into his own hands. And so he splits his wealth. He sends part of his wealth, one half over here and one half of his wealth over there because he knows if Esau attacks over here, he can escape with at least half of his wealth over there and vice versa. And so he's got a plan. He's, he's conniving, he's scheming. He's trying to come up with something. So then he gets a bunch of gifts together because he's a wealthy guy now. He gets a bunch of gifts and he sends messengers with those gifts to Esau. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to tell Esau. Write this down. Make sure you say this, these gifts are for my Lord Esau from his humble servant, Jacob. (laughs) Like that was gonna work. My Lord, who I swindled. Your humble servant, Jacob, the con artist. And there he is, he's trying to control it. Anything he can do, bribery, flattery, trying to manage outcomes. He's back to his old ways. I'm not sure he ever left his old ways. But this is Jacob. Bribery, manipulation, hedging his bets, rigging, conniving. He sends his family away and he's left all alone. It's been a long time since he's been alone. Last time we have record of him being alone was that night back in Bethel. And while he's alone, it says the angel of the Lord came to him and began to wrestle him 
We find out later that it was the Lord himself, and, and it's just an amazing story, and we have questions, but we're not given a lot of answers, but he's wrestling with the Lord, and while they're wrestling, the angel of the Lord reaches back and grabs Jacob by the back of the leg, and his leg kind of shrivels up, and it knocks it out of socket, and the angel says, let me go, let me go, and Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Jacob was born holding on to the heel of his brother Esau, but now He's grabbed onto the Lord and he realizes it's that moment of clarity that sometimes we're given and it's brief, but in that moment, he's got a little bit of clarity. And he realizes, I can't let go. You're the only hope I have. If you don't bless me, there is no blessing. I can't let go. I can't do for myself what needs to be done. I need you. And he's got this moment of clarity and it's, it's beautiful and it's compelling. And then the angel looks back and says, what's your name? Jacob, maybe for the first time, I don't know. Certainly for the first time in a long time, he's honest with himself, with God. And he says, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm a manipulator. I hurt people to get my way. I make a mess of things in order to gain advantage in order to be first. I'm Jacob. I've lived my life thinking about me first. And it's honesty, it's authenticity, and it's a beautiful moment. And the angel of the Lord, God himself says, Jacob, I'm not, you're not called Jacob anymore, you're called Israel. Because you have wrestled with people and with God and you have won and he received the blessing from God and he walked away with a limp that he would have for the rest of his life Jacob and Esau make up it's amazing Esau says hey let's spend some time together let's catch up let's go north to Seir and let's just hang out man we've made up everything's good now and Jacob looks at him and says, man, that sounds good, brother, I'll tell you. But my flock, they're a little younger than yours. They're not as mature. They won't go as fast as you. You just go ahead and move on first. We'll catch up when we get there. And Esau was like, man, I don't want you to get lost. Let me leave a couple of guides for you. Oh, Jacob said, I know exactly where we're going. And so Esau said, man, brother, I can't wait to catch up. And Esau went north. Jacob turned around and went south. A moment with God. And in the very next, it's like he gets in his way again, back to swindling, back to wondering what Esau is up to, back to trying to figure it out and taking things into his own hands, lying and manipulating. You go north, I'll beat you, I'll meet you there. And he goes south. Some bad things happen there, I don't have time to tell you about it. His daughter's raped, his sons basically wipe out an entire city. And then it says, God said to Jacob, and this is where we ended. And God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel. Go back to that place where you were 30 years ago where you first met me. Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. You remember that, Jacob? I want you to go back where me and you first met. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Get rid of the idols because... 
Not only has it happened to Jake, it's happened to his family. He's drifted away, he's turned away. He's been deceived and he's turned to worthless things. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come and let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me. I remember it. He answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Come on. And I love this. This is so true. But Jacob at this point, he's moving right in the direction God has wanted him to move the whole time. And it's the idea that resistance is futile. You may run away, but you only end up running towards the place where God is wanting to take you anyway. He thinks he's running away, but he's really running to where God's trying to get him to in the first place. So he goes to Bethel and he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. And God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. And he renews the promise to Jacob despite everything that had happened. And Jacob called the place where God had talked with him, Bethel. When you drift, the first step forward is a step back. Jacob had to go back to the place where God met him at his lowest, at the darkest, in the moment of his worst failure, in the moments of his most embarrassing season, he goes back to that place to remember how faithful God was, how faithful God has been, how merciful God has been, how God met him at his lowest, how patient God has been in his love towards Jacob, how God has refused for 30 years of Jacob's Games that he loves to play. For 30 years of his ups and downs and drifts and comes back and drifts and comes back, 30 years God has refused to forsake him, refused to abandon him. And he goes back to remember that it's been by the Lord's mercies that he's not been consumed. That God's mercy has been new every morning for Jacob. That great is the faithfulness of God towards people like Jacob even when they are faithless. Jacob goes back to that place in that moment to be reminded what he needs to remember about God. Because he needs to remember and you need to remember that failure isn't final. My failure isn't final. Let's all just say that out loud because somebody needs to say it this morning. My failure isn't final. One more time. My failure isn't final. It wasn't for Jacob. It's not for you. You are not your worst moment. You will not be defined by your greatest failure. But in the end, you will be defined by the grace of God, by the love of God, the forgiveness of God. You won't be judged by your worst moment. You'll be judged by your best moment of when you placed your faith in the Lamb of God that took all of your sins, bore them on the cross so that God could forgive them and forget them and never once for a single solitary moment ever hold them against you ever again. My failure isn't final. Your failure isn't final. Your failure will never be the end of your story. God's grace will always be the end of your story. Jacob needed to be reminded, and so do we, that God never gives up on you. God never gives up on me. God never gives up on us. Even at our worst, even at our lowest, 
Even when we just can't seem to get it right and we have this moment and we worship and we praise and we feel the presence of God and it's like we go out and we do the same thing again. And then we have another experience with God and we go out and do the same thing again. And it's like, when am I gonna run out of patience? When is God gonna run out of patience for me? Because I'm out of patience for myself. When is God gonna stop loving me? Because I'm not even sure I love me anymore. When is God gonna feel disgust for me? Because I just, I'm just kind of disgusted at myself. God never gives up on you. He doesn't throw broken things away. He doesn't keep score. He doesn't walk away. Jacob and all of us need to be reminded that when things feel bleakest, God is closest. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. That when you've messed up and you've messed up again and you've messed up again and you've messed up again and you've hurt others and you've hurt yourself, that when your heart is broke and your spirit is crushed, he'll meet you in the pain. He'll meet you in the despair. He'll meet you in the shame and the guilt and the failure and the mess and in the hell of all of it. He'll meet you there. He'll draw near to let you know that there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He'll turn the place of your guilt into the place of his grace place of your failure and the place of his forgiveness, the place of your pain into the place of his healing, the place of your hopelessness to the place of promise in the future. He wants you to revisit those moments, to go back to those times where he met you so that you can be reminded God's not done with you. God's not through with you. God's not angry at you. No wonder the psalmist said, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Happy are those who find help like Jacob did, who found hope like Jacob did in his God. God wasn't through with Jacob, and God's certainly not through with you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Would you speak to our hearts what needs to be heard? God, for some, it may be a long time since we felt your presence. And we're wondering, are you really there? Are you really close to the brokenhearted? Are you really near to the crushed in spirit? For some of us, we're wallowing in guilt and we're wallowing in shame and we're wallowing in regret and God, it feels like everything's just coming unraveled. Would you meet us in a way that we would say, surely the Lord is in this place. Meet with us, Lord. Do what only your words and your presence can do. In Jesus' name.